good evening. Douglas, good evening. Carl, he's here for every child and everybody else. Thank you very much for joining us here at Maria Report on this wonderful European Friday night. And we are very lucky to have uh, one of our special, but also regular guests, uh, yet again with us. Not only a great author, but uh, a, say, valedictorian of the intelligence services. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Douglas, Sorry, my mic was on for the laugh. I couldn't help it. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Welcome. How is the former station chief? It's uh, it's great to be back. Um, sorry it's been so long, uh, but it's it's what a good time to be talking about things Ukraine, right, and and things Russia and world affairs. So uh, as uh, your uh, the predecessors just talked about the big vote coming up in the Senate, so there's uh, no shortage of things to talk about. So I'm I'm eager to hear uh, what folks out there want to discuss and, and, and happy to pivot in whatever direction people are, are looking to address. Thank you very much. And Douglas, we have to start, of course, with the, with the fact that the Russian propaganda machine has been really, really high on its own supply this week. And uh, we've seen that even those who are gullible and uh, easily su subjugate themselves to Sauron find out that Sauron doesn't like if uh, somebody says something about him which makes him not so special. Uh, Mr. Carlson's interviewer uh, has been cast, castigated for being boring and being, uh, say, nothing else than a chronocopia of a travesty. Of, of... I, I, I think I'm losing you. I hope please, I'm still with you. Please have... Uh... Axel, can you hear me now? Yeah. Loud, yeah. You're, you're lost for five seconds. Okay, sorry. At the very end of the uh, interview, he obviously, uh, just in order to make sure that he could not be completely attacked by everyone, he uh, asked yet again, could we please, please have Evan Gershkovich back? And of course, no question about it. A, Putin had foreseen the question, was prepared, knew what would be coming, and uh, completely befuddled him, derogated him, and before it had already made clear that what he really, really wants is somebody who's been a very successful assassin in Germany and cannot be released by the US anyway. What a nice way of fibbing off and casting off Mr. Carlson, right? It's uh, not all true, but I, I, I think we did learn a fair bit from the interview last night. And uh, unfortunately, it's not all good news. Um, obviously, Mr. Putin is in a robust health. He appeared quite well, quite lucid. Uh, for him, it was a short talk. Two hours is usually short for the speeches he has been known to give over time, but clearly had the energy. And he came across as um, reasonable and conciliatory, which when that comes to Putin, unfortunately tells us he feels very confident and he's in a position of strength. When he's feeling weak and insecure, he's usually on the attack and far more aggressive and makes threats and you know rattles sabers. But he's... Uh, Sadly, due to circumstances that are heavily contributed to by, by United States politics, uh, he's, he's in a good place right now. But I, I think folks, uh, me included, are going to be looking at that interview repeatedly and trying to find little signs and keys, particularly when he wasn't on script, because he very much came prepared with what he wanted to say. He had, you know, almost gave, pretty much gave a speech at the beginning when he was going on and on about history and his view of history and would have gone on even longer <laughs> had, had he been able to and wasn't too pleased he was uh, interrupted as, as it was. So I, I think there will be takeaways that uh, I'd like to think people much smarter than me in, in the, the world of observers and various intelligence services are going to pick up. But unfortunately, my takeaway 
isn't an encouraging one from the, from the interview, but but useful just the same. Yeah, he, he definitely tried to project calm, albeit that yet again his physical health. Well, we could discuss as to what on earth is going on with his leg as a part of the both Russian diaspora as well as, I can <laughs> shall help. we say, uh, Marcus, you can help. You can help a little bit. Absolutely, no question. Because there are so many rumors about his, uh, say, issue with the posture of both his leg as well as his feet for such a long time, it might be simply something that we do not know. But Marcus, what was your comment? Sorry, um, um, I, I'm a biomedical engineer and I specialize in uh, gait stuff, so I, <clears throat> this is in my wheelhouse. Um, so what, uh, if you're talking about the time where he does extreme kind of dorsiflexion, so that's when his toes point upwards yep. and then he pushes down. Yep. So what that looked to me is an innocuous kind of innocuous, just a cramp uh, rather than something like spasticity because it just appears, right? If he had an issue with something like spasticity post-stroke, it would be present, but not necessarily like something like a lightning bolt that hits him. Um, and when he presses down his leg and grimaces, well, that kind of tells you that it, as a cramp goes, it might be something that's a little bit more extreme than you normally have, like with a Charlie horse. Um, so it, it might be that he was in that posture for a long time or that he has some cons persistent issues with um, with clonus or, or spasticity otherwise, right? Marcus, um, you have just joined <clears throat> you have just joined the epic long standing guild of the Kremlinologists. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Which is okay. But a uh, key thing is that if I'm not quite mistaken, I don't know, Douglas, whether that is going too far, but uh, you you don't have to confirm or deny this, but you can just smile if you like to but uh, there were significant indications and rumors that Putin had suffered a stroke once in the last eight years. You know, I had seen that in, in the public realm. Uh, that's really where I saw it. Uh, so it suggests to me that there's no, you know, real inside, uh, or at least not that I was privy to, and I wouldn't necessarily have been. But, uh, you know, I, my takeaway, though, just from seeing him, he, he's, you know, he spent two hours in that seat. Now I get, you know, a little uncomfortable after 15 minutes sitting down and the man's not a youngster. And so his ability to stay lucid, he, uh, he spoke extemporaneously. He was quick on his feet. Uh, clearly he, uh, he was well-prepared, but he was able to pivot. He bantered, he made quips. So, you know, I, I have no medical qualifications at all, obviously, but I my, my takeaway would be he's doing okay. Uh, you know, whatever illness, if you had illnesses or whatever, right now he is healthy. He's fully in charge of his wits. Uh, so he, he doesn't look like he's uh, leaving this, this, this world anytime soon. And, and I'm sure that doctors around the world and, and all sorts of specialists will be looking frame by frame and doing close-ups and looking for any sort of insights. You know, did he have cancer? Did he have a stroke? Did he have this? But I think it'll still come across the same that at least for the foreseeable future, there's no impediment to his ability to to be in charge and uh, and to execute his his role and responsibilities to the best of his abilities. You know, unfortunately, if you would, for us. Yeah, the reintegration of uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich uh, into the food chain will have to be involuntary. I yeah, I, I would suspect. I would suspect so, and I, I think that's probably always been the case.
Now, right, but nevertheless, it also this this story and the whole process with uh, the former, I wish I were a journalist, but I'm a media personality. Um, um, I'm not going to, too deep into this because I think I wanted to just lead over into one thing, which is the long-standing cultivation of people who have personality disorders, uh, social complexes in any shape or form, or are just, um, they, they have a certain need to be perceived as brilliant, but are not necessarily where media, let's say grandies, journalists have been cultivated by the KGB for decades in order to rise up, but not only media, academia, more, more than, more often actually than anything else, politicians coming out of uh, early academic studies. Um, mediocrity is very, very gullible and fallible. And unfortunately, um, it can be coming. It seems to me that uh, Mr. Carlson has found his um, sufficient amount of cunning in order to do it. But uh, the long-term programming and manipulation of his um, is evident. Uh, in the years before, right in the run-up to the full-scale invasion, Mr. Carlson had shown very clearly that he is constantly repeating Russian narratives, whether it was the bombings of Donbass, by, uh, whether it was the biolabs, which he extolled uh, rather unvirtuously, um, and, but with great virtuosity, of course, um, whether it was the uh, supposed um, Nazism in Ukraine, uh, contrast and corruption in Ukraine with, of course, no corruption in Russia, this is a continuation. This is something which has been, uh, which he has voluntarily done for a long time. But repeating Russian narratives at a, such a stage in his career, media career, and with such reach, uh, makes him, of course, most welcome to those at Jajinsky Square. Yeah, you know, I I, I wish I could um, find the conspiracy thread there to to validate, uh, but unfortunately, it's it's a sad <laughs> reality in the United States. So Tucker Carlson, he's he's, he's a smart guy, uh, you know, if you followed him for years and years, and he's going where the money is. Uh, he's looking for popularity, and popularity to a media figure is is money and influence, and he's found his niche. And he's found his niche very much in that same, you know, MAGA movement that is uh, sympathetically supportive of the former President Trump. Uh, and I, I think he is very much exploiting it for his own gains. He does not need direction or support or amplification. He's doing this because it is appealing to the audience that he has cultivated. And very sadly, uh, in my country, there is a very strong perception that Putin and Russia uh, are the, you know, uh, antithesis of what they call woke, you know, you know, diversity and inclusion and, oh, the demoralization of society. So rather than follow the trend of the Republican Party over decades and decades and decades as, as in fact, you know, always claiming its propriety is being stronger on security against Russia which was, you know, the preeminent threat, it's really been turned on its head from the days of Ronald Reagan and even before Reagan, uh, long before Reagan, in terms of not seeing Russia as a threat, but seeing, God help us all, uh, Putin and Russia as an example of how our society should be. And Carlson has very much tapped into that because 
there's money there. There's popularity there. And it's uh, regardless what he thinks. If you look at Carlson, uh, historically, he came up more as a neoconservative, you know, Reagan Republican, all that. Uh, and that was popular then. But this is where he's really claimed his fame and, you know, was was incredibly popular on Fox News until his personal behavior and, and comportment uh, undermined him, which, of course, his fan base doesn't really care about. They certainly forgive former President Trump, whether he's you know assaulting a woman or, you know, paying prostitutes or whatever, uh, so long as what he says and what he reflects is consistent with what they, they want to see. It's really, it's, it's further ironic to, that, and, and stop me as I prattle on if you wish. No, no, but, okay. you know, carry in, on. I have a few questions and I have a few comments. In, in, in the United States, the, the evangelicals have always been very much aligned with the Republicans and the conservative movement, but even they have changed because the, the evangelicals in their day were at least uh, portraying a more benign and benevolent approach to the issues, whether it was a woman's right to choose or immigration, and they've been turned on their head in terms of becoming much more vitriolic and 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 uh, I, I think inhumane in a lot of ways in their uh, in their lack of concern for people who are, you know, downtrodden or under attack or whatever, which is why even they can, you know, question, well, why are we in Ukraine and why should we support those people? Because maybe, and, and we've been seeing this in the press recently, uh, maybe Ukraine really was the country that meddled in our elections and it wasn't Russia all along. And, and you know, Putin's speaking out against lesbians and gays and, and LGBTQ and, and, and all these issues. Uh, so maybe he's not such a bad guy at all. And that plays really, really well, unfortunately, for that, for that MAGA base. And I think Putin, for his part in the interview, I mean, he was very smart to select Tucker Carlson. Uh, who who they love in Russia, uh, and who he knew would would jump on the interview because this is putting Tucker Carlson back in the news because he's not had an easy time since he's been fired. But everybody's looking at this interview. I'm looking at this interview. I would never otherwise look at anything Tucker Carlson had to say or listen to. But here I am even watching it, and he scripted his presentation to come across as lucid, reasonable, conciliatory. Uh, I, I'm sadly, I, I, I think he did a good job, but he doesn't understand America enough because he put most of America to sleep with his diatribe on history. I mean, Americans are just probably tuning out and fast forwarding and, and, and not even, not even listening to that, which he thought was, okay, here's my evidence. I'm going to litigate, right? I'm going to appeal to, uh, America's, you know, sort of litigious approach to, to the world and say, Here's my opportunity to make my case. And I, I, I seriously, I mean, the first time I saw the interview, I fast forwarded through that. I would like pause and listen to something and then go forward. And I, and I went back to it because I, I wanted to see all of it. But uh, most of America is, is going to just listen to the sound bites that they see on, on the news or on YouTube. And even his sound bites, I think, you know, did what he sought out to do. And uh, it's it's a momentous time as as again the Senate's voting tonight. I'm I'm just encouraged that there is a vote that we've gotten this far that they've separated the bill from immigration and it's still going forward. I I don't know if it's going to get through the Senate and if it gets through the Senate, I don't know if it's going to get through the the House. But it's it's actually uh, better than I thought. It's, it exceeds my expectations. 
So to to that point, you know, Putin's presentation, which is which is what it was last night, I don't think is going to have a tremendous impact on that right now, uh, because the fact of the matter is Ukrainians are dying and more of them are going to die because they're running out of you know bullets and whatever to defend themselves. And and Putin's already you know, taken over the part of Ukraine he claims he seeks and he's, you know, still firing missiles and, and doing all that and, and targeting civilians. So, I, you know, again, but, but Douglas, I can only hope to build this hard. Yeah, I agree. I'm not, I'm, I'm not against that at all. And I think we both agree in that regard. The bill in itself should never have been in dispute. However, what also should never have been in dispute is, of course, that um, the administration could have done a lot more already by itself without having to ask Congress. It can do so even today without having to ask Congress, and it doesn't. And that is, it is essentially a conundrum of domestic policy infighting between Democrats and Republicans, which um, has Ukraine as a pinball in the middle, which I find astonishing, because the, um, for example, a vast amount of the uh, phased out and not to be ever used again, ordinance, and specifically that the cluster ammunition stock, which uh, um, the US armed forces, and there specifically the, the US army and the Marines have in hand, um, no American soldier will ever be using them again. Can't, won't. There's significant documentation from um, the U.S. Congress, both Senate and the House in that regard, the DOD has published this, does publish lists and inventory statuses. And technically, under a very good and well-passed law, the president could have already simply handed them over and hasn't. The cluster ammunition would replace and would uh, subside and supplement existing ordnance stocks in Ukraine. And when people ask what level of cluster ammunition is there, well, let me give you an example. Germany is currently ramping up finally, far too late, of course, its uh, production of one of the howitzers of the Panzerhaubitz 2000. But uh, don't beat me, 10,800 something in January of those. Sometimes they deliver 13,000. Depends on what is being produced in the month before. In the month of December, they produce less, of course, because of a few holidays, da da da, and therefore. However, now this is going to be ramped up. The indications are this could be up to 17,000, 18,000 sooner rather than later. And the overall year should see anywhere between 230 and 290,000, depending on how the production capacity is being built out. Now, the US Armed Forces Storage the Inventory has currently um, more than enough volume to deliver hundreds of thousands per quarter without even touching the base of the stock out of phased out stocks. That's not being done despite the fact that we have USC 2321J, uh, which stipulates, this is the excess defense articles that uh, transfers to, in this case, very specifically, up to 500 million in value per discharge, per batch, quite literally, per segment, could be delivered to Ukraine. Now, the funny thing is, 500 million doesn't sound much in comparison to all the billions we're always talking about, but as Doug and I know, these are phased out ammunitions. They actually currently have a book value of one per unit, and they have a destruction value 
meaning a cost associated. We're saving money, or the U.S. would be saving money sending this ammunition. Can it be used in the Ukraine? Absolutely. Are the Ukrainians begging for it? Yes, it's more than one and a half years. Did they receive some of them? Yes, they did. Did they receive the things which are now being phased out in the past five quarters? Not a bit. There are so many things which are not being done. How can we make the national security process not become a domestic issue? Doug, is that possible in an election year? Or is it actually uh, an election no. year where it should happen? <laughs> well, first of all, I, I don't think it's possible. Um, second of all, I, I won't debate you. I've clearly done your research. But uh, having spent my, my adult life in the U.S. government, anything the U.S. government owns, the U.S. government owns. And you've got to account for it. And while you're right, I, I am aware there are exceptions the president could use. Uh, they used it um, to provide Israel some materials uh, not too long ago. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tremendous risk to undermine Congress. And that's the way Congress would perceive it. Congress would perceive that the president is overreaching on its authorities. It's not a question of litigating it and whatever. It's Congress, even the Democrats would not be pleased that feeling that their power of the purse, which is essentially it is, because even though it's already been paid for, you're right, uh, but it's it's government property, and that the president is then not going to Congress, going around them. Legally, he can, uh, but he would pay the price for it. So to that extent, he's tied it all together, thinking that, well, I'm showing this is not just about Ukraine. It's all it's Ukraine, Israel. And Taiwan, right? He's lumped those all together, and still, <laughs> and still, uh, because of the GOP resistance, uh, he can't get it through normal processes. So, you know, I, I'm sure looking at it, uh, and you did your research, and you, you're absolutely right. There are ways and means, <laughs> but I think the political costs, the political costs, would be so consequential and enduring that Congress would spite him. And I've seen that happen. I've seen my own agency do something which Congress didn't like, and he showed it was perfectly legal, and they went, no, perfectly legal, and now we're cutting blank millions of dollars to punish you because Congress can do it. That's in their authority. Yeah, but this so is a, I totally this is a understand. Congress, I agree with you, January, that, but this is a bill which a Republican Congress in the latter years of uh, Bill Clinton's second term put in place, which has been uh, since then reinstated, added on to and uh, specified by both. Uh, oh, but, but actually you're looking at it, wait, 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 you're me... looking at it logically <laughs> and, 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 and there's else. no logic here. There's no logic here. The Republicans shot down their own immigration bill. I, I, it was their I'm not, bill. I'm not debating they that. They sponsored it, drafted it, negotiated it, got more compromises than ever, and shot it down because, because there is no logic No, there was a show. I, I don't disagree with this. What I'm saying is this is something which has been set up specifically in the last three and a half years by changing majorities. And it's something which is specifically created also reiterated, even by this Congress, meaning a um, majority a Democrat Senate, Senate and a majority Republican House. And the priority in the terms of transfer say, say as follows. This is, uh, this is something which the president can do any given day. 
and he doesn't need a budget for it because it then why doesn't why doesn't he do it for that's for exactly Israel? And, and, and why doesn't he do it for time? Because it's politics. He can't afford to. He can. He simply well, not politically. He can't afford. Why to. can't he? Okay, if he could afford to politically, if, if the president's if the president and his team thought this would make him more popular, he would do it. Uh, but clearly, they determined no, no, no. that this is a sensitive issue, even within the Democratic Party, because. Yeah. It will be considered an excess of presidential authority, but it regardless, regardless, as I said, regardless the legal nature, because it is not the way things are done. And there is a social contract that this is the process and this is how we use it. And if you abuse the process, you will pay for it politically. And I believe that's right. And historically, in the history of the United States, when a president has done that, even his own party has undermined it. The exception is Trump, where it is like a cult. You know, Trump could do whatever he wants, abuse whatever law, and seems to be fine. But the rest of the more rational world in America uh, is still playing by by the rules. So I, I'm I'm not pleased that there's there's a hold on the aid to Ukraine and particularly to Taiwan for the defense of Taiwan as well. But um, I understand it. I, I I get it, and I think the president, particularly in, in an election year. Is, is doing the only thing that's politically reasonable for his own survival. Well, then, okay, let me read out two sections because I've obviously spoken to a number of people, by the way, funny enough, but on both sides of the aisle as well as... And, and you don't have to convince me, Axel. I, 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 honestly, I'm not debating the, the veracity of, of your research. I'm simply telling you how the perceptions are influencing the decision-making regardless the authorities that you have found that the president could mm -hmm. execute, but it would be at his own peril politically. Okay. If I tell you now the following, that the NSC has debated this, because the, let me read out the two paragraphs which merit in that regard, because I want to have this from, uh, if the intelligence agencies were to, obviously in this case, we now have a, say, a director of national intelligence. If he were to listen to people debating the following, which since the days of Conde Rice, by the way, has been debated in that format and has been used also. But here is the following. The in intro is the authorization under 2321J is the president is authorized to transfer excess defense articles under this section to countries for which receipt of such articles was justified person to the annual congressional presentation documents for military assistance programs, which exists here, by the way, or for programs under part Eight of subchapter one of this chapter, which is another one of these titles, which Ukraine would fulfill, submitted under section 23 from 94, blah, blah, blah. Then it continues, or for which receipt of such articles was separately justified for the Congress, which was the case, because we also had a land lease, for the fiscal year in which the transfer is authorized. Now, that's it. Then it continues, and this is the, the key section in this, because it was set up specifically to defend this flank. Priority, terms of transfer. First, no cost to recipient country. Excess defense articles may be transferred under this section without cost to the recipient country. There's a reason for it because it costs less than the destruction. Second, priority. Notwithstanding any other provision of law, the delivery of excess defense articles under this section to member countries of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, in brackets, NATO, on the southern and southeastern flank of NATO to major non-NATO allies on such southern and southeastern flank to Taiwan and to the Philippines shall be given priority to the maximum extent feasible 
over the delivery of such ex excess defense articles to other countries. Can I, can I, can I pause you, know, you? Because I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not debating, <laughs> I'm not litigating here. I am simply telling you the politics. And I'm simply offering to you that were the president to do that, it would be outside the norm, outside the process. And that is usually considered for very small paltry amounts, which still even the delivery of those weapons cost money, right? You still have to pay for things to be shipped. Who authorizes that? Congress. So ultimately, Congress owns the purse strings. Moreover than that, perception-wise, this is a republic, the United States is. The president and all the other elected officials are supposed to be representing the will of the people. If the Congress is saying the will of the people is not to provide that support, which right now with, you know, there's not 60 votes in the Senate, or maybe there will be. There's a, a majority uh, Republican in the House suggests that the will of the people is not to do this. Then the president is violating the will of the people. How is does he, that play? If it says it, the president it, it, is authorized. It, 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 it doesn't matter that he's authorized. It's authorized by, you know, there's a lot of things the presidents are authorized to do. But if the American public doesn't want to do something and he still does it, then he has violated the will of the people. It's not a law he's broken, but politically he's broken the trust. So what I'm telling you again, or reemphasizing to you, it doesn't matter what the law or, or authorities are. It is not the normal process. There's a reason for that process because it is supposed to reflect the popular will of the people. The things that the president are authorized to do in exigency are not supposed to be the exigencies due to politics, that there's dissent, but it's, you know, expediency and there's popular support, but there's not enough time to get behind it. There's plenty of time. There's been time. But the will of the people, based on the way Congress has been, is saying we don't want to do it. Now, I think it's wrong and it's politics and it's the way this, you know, things have been sort of perverted in the system. But that the president act politically, it would be political suicide for him to do it. Okay. I, I grant you that you can harbor this opinion that it would be political suicide, albeit that I believe that when it's when the law which was passed and reiterated by this Congress and the last Congress, by the way, since the full-scale invasion and since 2014, says the president is authorized, he is authorized, the will of the people is actually the Congress passing these laws. So let no, me no, no, turn it around on you, Axel. No, no, because I, 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 don't, I don't want to keep litigating this, because no, no, you know, you're just going to quote references. You on. tell me... Why then the president, who's so supportive of Ukraine, you tell me why you think the president hasn't done it, if it's I, not politics? I think that, no, of course, it is all politics. That's okay, exactly so we're what, agreed. So it, we're done. Yeah, but <laughs> no, we're not done. Because I would like to, this president can win the election easily by moving the national security question out of the hands of the domestic debate. No, but it's not possible. Oh, yes. I, I wish it. I wish it was because the United States strength, votes on domestic issues. Strong leader. And the, no. the main line to be polled is strong leader. Strong leadership says, in times of existential war, protecting both the union and its allies, the president shall, and the president can. He has the capabilities. That's what I'm saying. Why is it? And the GOP and the MAGA movement has said Trump is stronger. Trump says I could solve this in 24 hours. I mean, obviously. <laughs> He can't, but his people believe it. Okay, so it's it's. I, I mean, American politics uh, is is hard for Americans to understand because it's just been subject to you know 
emotions and you know disinformation and and all sorts of uh of, of wild and craziness but but i i i'm i'm, I'm okay. offering as an american and as an american who worked in government my whole life i i i wish the president could do all these things and um if, if there was other reasons you know if you have other reasons why you think that he's a secret agenda and he's secretly no, in bed I mean, with trump no, or no. i mean he wants to no. do this too so Clearly, the reason is it's, it it's politics. I mean, it, it, it is. It, it's, it's sadly, it's sadly politics. I mean, we've got immigration has become mm -hmm. a national security issue in America, where the Republicans are saying we're being is invaded. But so I've been, I've been in countries that were invaded, and this looks nothing like an invasion. People that invade <laughs> are like shooting at me and bombing and taking over territory. So you know, it's 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 unfortunately politics. Douglas, we both agree on this one. This needs to hit home hard. Okay. I understand this. It needs to hit home hard. But how on earth, if not this president, who understands what is at stake, and I grant him that, I absolutely believe that he understands exactly what is at stake. Um, I think that he has a fair, fair, long-grown animus also towards the uh, authoritarian regimes despite the fact that he has this friendship with Xi Jinping, for whatever reason, out of his, you know, courtly visits uh, in uh, as a vice president. But that, that cast aside, he has a clear definition of right and wrong in that regard. He understands that this needs to be fought. What needs to happen that he takes this national security question and takes it away from the table. Do you think there's anything that could happen that he could could do that to say, I'm the president, I have executive power, we need to win this, the free world is at stake? Well, I mean, I think more broadly, I would submit that President Biden just hasn't done a good job on messaging concerning any of the key issues that uh, America is is face are facing today. Let alone, you know, Ukraine or immigration. I mean, here's a president that's that's made compromises that has, you know, like AOC and the progressive left pulling their hair out on immigration. But he was willing to do that because of the national security threat uh, from Russia and China and 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 terrorism and such around the world. And he still couldn't pull it off. You know, watching his press briefing last night was was very disheartening because rather than disprove. You know, the special counsel's report about, oh, you know, this was an old man with a failing memory. Uh, his behavior validated it when he referred to, you know, Sisi, uh, General Sisi in Egypt as the president of Mexico. So um, he does not do particularly well on on messaging, unfortunately. He's not, he's not a very effective communicator. So for him to then take this course of action and he's taken you know courses of actions that were very unpopular uh, even in his own administration there's a lot of dissent on what's going on in in israel and only now do we even hear biden saying the israelis are going over the top and that's the first criticism really we've heard from him despite within his own ranks he withdrew from uh, american forces from afghanistan despite the protests, what we've seen, at least in public, of his Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and he still did it anyway. So he very much will go his own way, so he's not afraid of going his own way, but he communicates very poorly. And uh, that's very unfortunate, particularly uh, with so much at stake in election year. You know, former President Trump has declared that 
you know, an attack on NATO doesn't necessarily mean the United States is going to respond. I mean, just like which is you know, ultimate it's insanity, just chilling. Yeah, it it's insanity, Absolutely. right? It's just it's unbelievably chilling to to hear that. And and you know, Putin is going, you know, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, here we come, right? Uh, so it's it's astounding what's happening. And and you know, I was having this conversation with with my wife the other night, and I was like. Boy, I tell you, I am I am feeling like the old man who talks about the good old days. But I I I wish we had the the good old days where Republicans and Democrats they would argue about the ways to achieve American interests, but not the American interest. Where now those interests are so polarized in in ways that are are for me uh, a baby boomer right generationalized are be, are absolutely behind comprehension. And unfortunately, one of the cultural realities about the United States is most Americans are really not interested in what's going on outside this country. They simply aren't. Um, Americans have forgotten 9-11, particularly the young generation who you know weren't even born then or just were kids then. Uh, they're already forgetting the Islamic State when it comes to terrorism because, you know, 2016, 17, 18, that's a long time ago and and for Americans it's in the review mirror. So Ukraine uh to them has not really seized them sufficiently as it should, considering the, the, the massive threat that, that Russia poses, not just to Ukraine, but to Europe and, and you know to the liberal democracies of the world. But that is unfortunately a reality and the Republicans have done very well in doing precisely what you said, Axel. They have linked the existing national security and foreign policy issues into domestic agenda, into domestic issues. And they've turned it into ethics and morality and the woke left and the invasion at our border. And unfortunately, they have been extremely effective. So my hope as an American is that as committed as Trump's base is, and they're committed, they're going to turn out, I'm hoping there's less of them than those Americans who go, wow, he's a nut. We simply can't afford that. So, you know, we're not thrilled necessarily with everything Biden is doing, but to keep Trump out of the White House, we'll vote for Biden. But I don't know. You know, I, I, I am like, oh, my gosh, and, and, and keep my fingers crossed. Yeah, it is a tantalizing uh, spectacle. I, I agree with you. I and mean, it's unfortunately a spectacle which should not be won at all because uh, it, it is only so terrifying because people are playing with the security of this world. Uh, let me give you a, yep. a couple of names. Capito, Cassidy, Collins, Conan, Ernst, Grassley, Kennedy, Co McConnell, Moran, Murkowski, Romney, Round, Sullivan, Toome, Tillis, Wicker, and Young. You're doing a call the Senate? That those were the GOP votes in favor alongside the 67, 33, 32, uh, 34, HR 815. Right. Those were the ones who voted uh, to keep this alive. Some of the others, for whatever reasons, which I find despicable, and I have to single out someone I, I know and I typically get along fa fairly well with, Lindsey Graham voted against it, oh, yeah. which was absolutely despicable. And our friends at the uh, Wall Street Journal called him out for it uh, because that is just political i mean this is state politics more than anything it's state politics taking prime over what he once called the most important issue of our time i'm very well that's that's his relationship with trump so i'm, yeah, I'm sure that had a lot to do with relationship it. with trump and state politics in south carolina and therefore 
projection of this bullshit. He needs to get out of it. We are, we're, I, I haven't seen anything. I don't know whether CC have you, CC have you seen the vote, uh, the call already? Or is the vote already on? Is it, isn't it? It's 7 p.m. Eastern time ah, in the United States. 7 p.m. Sorry, apologies. So, um, that we won't. Oh, four and a half hours, actually. Okay, apologies. My mistake. Um, but thank you for reminding me. Um, so, we'll have to wait until the vote is there. I would hope that uh, uh, Lindsey Graham will actually vote for this tonight because he's been called heavily by many people I know from both Europe as well as uh, over there on your, uh, across your pond and uh, highlighted that this cannot stand. Well, you know, the, the thing with Lindsey Graham, uh, if you look at him historically, it's ridiculous he wouldn't vote for it. But I, I have this, like, weird belief that, you know, Trump has a dossier on him, <laughs> Lindsey Graham. And it's like, I've got this file on you, and I'm going to expose a whole lot of things that's going to be very bad for you. And Because Lindsey Graham uh, was never a Trump supporter, didn't support Trump in 2016, basically called him a menace. Right. Has always been very hawkish on Russia as well as China, very supportive of, you know, national security. And he has really been just totally aligned with Trump in ways that are inconsistent with his own politics. Until a few weeks ago, he said he would vote for Ukraine, but he wanted to include this border topic, blah, blah, blah. So he followed, he told the line. Until Trump then torpedoed that. So, yeah, I know it's, you know, like I say, I, it's, it's a it's a very troubling error for American politics, and I hope we get past it and we can all laugh about it in, in years to come and go, oh, wasn't that a rough time? Yeah, well, normally, the funny thing is, Douglas, normally, when, when you and I come up, everybody knows that we're not talking politics, and normally on this space we don't talk U.S. domestic politics. We'll try to avoid it for reasons which, uh, which are vested in our approach to try to take this as calmly as possible because otherwise the emotions go up but at the same time today we were able to do so because from an intelligence and process perspective this is so clearly a process which can be exploited so easily by the russians by the enemies of freedom uh, because they just have to target those who are vulnerable well, and they, they also don't have to make things up. They can amplify what's being said that they like. Uh, you know, in this case, they can amplify things that are coming from the Trump constituency and, and the MAGA base uh, without having to make anything up. So uh, it makes their jobs a lot easier to solidify, uh, unfortunately, the opposition towards aid in Ukraine when you have, you know, the entire Republican uh, House of Representatives. Uh, Pretty much, and 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 a large number of the the senators basically saying, "Well, we can't we can't be worried about what's going on outside our country when we're being invaded." And again, like I say, you know, if any of these people would ever innovate an invasion, <laughs> they would realize we're not being invaded. Um, but it's it's just a it's a it's hard it's it's hard to to separate as you say, Axel. And yes, it's it's ripe territory for for an intel service, and it, in this case, it makes the job of the Russian intel services a whole lot easier. All right, then let's um, shift gears a little bit and move back to what happens currently with the narratives and the likes. Uh, you and I had a couple of chats in that regard. We could talk about also the other authoritarians, of course. Chinese included, who may be the significantly, um, say, more important menace. But at the same time, at the moment, we have to deal with the alligator, which is closest to the boat, right? Um, 
the narratives which and not only with the interview which with which we started but the russians have in recent weeks been um purporting and bringing forward were all directed still at corruption in ukraine for mm-hmm. well, and that, that was a major topic towards the end of december they then went mm-hmm. into the vulnerability the incapability of ukraine having any chance then they uh, portrayed ukraines as abusing prisoners that didn't work well on one day they tried it again the next day it didn't gel they're testing every single day four five six different messages different narratives just in order to find a way to get into the heads of people they see what could possibly work if it works they exploit it they pursue it further why are we not despite the fact that we're now two years into the full-scale invasion but we're nine years into this invasion in total and we've been in this war with Soviet Russia or the Tsarist Russian imperialism for a long time. Why on earth do we not grow up to simply take it as it is? You know, it's a, it's a different approach because they have different equities. So, you know, to try to give you sort of an intelligence analogy. Uh, so, uh, you know, I was a case officer. So my job was to go out and find people who would spy uh, against their country, their government, their terrorist group, whatever, uh, and, and work with me and the United States and say, so you could say, well, why don't we just ask lots of people? You know, if you ask enough people, somebody's going to say yes. Uh, and that may be true. But uh, the problem with that is we don't want to get caught. Because <laughs> if we if we ask 100 people and three people say yes and 97 say no, probably those those 97, some are going to go report it and, you know, people will get caught and thrown out and whatever like that. The Russians aren't worried about getting caught. So the Russians deal very much from an intelligence service and and disinformation. They deal in volume. It is about going uh, with as much material as they can and as you suggested, Axel, testing things out. Does this play? Does this not play? Because they're not worried about getting caught. And at least in the United States, uh, there's been the establishment of new offices, new agencies that they exist to sort of point out Russian disinformation. But here's, again, the political problem. Um, There's been such a loss of confidence in the United States for its institutions, particularly among the MAGA group who don't trust the government to be now, you know, conditioned that, well, you know, if it's not on Fox or Tucker Carlson, you know, you, you can't believe it. Um, uh, so the Russians have even greater impunity to work more carelessly and just focus on volume. It's just a different approach. When the United States and, and most of its partners conduct intelligence operations, whether it's covert influence, which is to seize the narrative, right, uh, or, you know, positive intelligence or whatever it is, there's a real concern for not getting caught because we'll be held accountable. Who's going to hold Russia accountable? Does Putin worry about polls? Does he worry about, you know, you know, the will of the people? Does he worry about, you know, media coming after him? He's got nothing to worry about. So if people go, ah, we know it was Russian disinformation, I mean, ah, he doesn't care. Where if, you know, the United States or Germany or the United Kingdom, you know, conduct some sort of covert influence operation and it comes back to them, aha, this was actually, you know, the Germans or the Americans, there'll be a scandal. Right. And political opposition in all these countries, which are all liberal democracies, will exploit it regardless of the consequences of national security, because it will serve their political interests. So there's a real reason why 
we do things differently covertly when we do it. We really mean covertly, where the Russians, you know, disinformation, assassination, they're not all that concerned. And as you said at the beginning, you know, the Wall Street Journal, um, the journalist who's in jail, Putin wants a known FSB assassin, right? Who, you know, various courts have said this was directed by Russia. He was an FSB officer and he killed a political dissident. He doesn't care because he would only need to care if it was an issue at home that threatened his power. And he doesn't have to worry about that like liberal democracies do. And he knows that Germany won't release him because Germany can't easily. I, I hope that's the case. I really do. I'd, I'd be I'd be devastated if Germany released him. I, I really would. So I'm I'm hoping that they don't. Yeah, and, and I know they have, they have no, the United States no, has to at least no, talk. Uh, the problem is the right. chancellor in Germany has has does not have that kind of uh, we call it Weisungsgewalt. Uh, he, uh, the judiciary okay. is fortunately sufficiently sufficiently oh, independent. Good. I wish we had that here. No, that's great, and and I and I hope that stays the case, and I hope it doesn't encourage Putin to arrest a German journalist now or or other German nationals to try to see if you could extract those kind of concessions. It would be obvious, but once again. He doesn't care about obvious. He really doesn't need to. And that's the interesting thing, because two things which just came up. A, first of all, he comes, he comes up by highlighting. He did this, the, the, the mentioning of Krasikov, both in the interview as well as, by the way, this is not the first time that this has been mentioned. He's been hinting at this before. And uh, his administration has done this before last year. So I don't know when was this, June, July last year, we had this discussion coming up. And uh, mm -hmm. it was quite clear. I think even you and I here with Chuck once uh, were talking about this bicycle murderer. And, uh, right. and the interesting thing is that we know that he wants to trade. He knows that the trade right. is impossible. Therefore, he would st wants to put the onus on both the US and Germany to do so, just in order keep the wound festering. That's an important feature to him. And uh, but he also shows pride to his own audience at home that this is our yeah, man. it's win-win. He, he, he has it, a win-win situation. It serves him no matter what happens, it's all win-win for him. No, I, exactly you're I, I, I totally and, and agree. we just don't so. we don't play that game. We don't No, we don't. The, because we have to answer to our people. You know, we have to answer to the the voters, the public and such like that and he doesn't have to. So Mr. Budanov has to answer Budanov is happy to the then. people who are going to support him. I agree. But Budanov Yeah, I, I, cuz he's fighting in a war, he's allowed to do anything. Uh, yeah, I don't know anything. Well, Russian he's, he's got have he's been, got uh, have been assassinated. Have yeah, been no, he's got generous he's got generous parameters. Um, uh, but I, I don't know well enough to know what those parameters are, to be honest. Should right? Ukraine... But he's he's exercised a lot of authority. You saw my question come around the corner from two miles, I know. Should yeah. Ukraine <laughs> target more? Should Ukraine target oligarchs and uh, Siloviki? Oligarchs, I don't think, would get it much. Siloviki, maybe, yeah. Um, I... I, I I could see that having some influence, but you know, Putin has 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 more and more solidified his position in that he doesn't he worries less and less about the circles around him, right? I mean, ultimately, if he's going, it's going to be somebody near him who's going to help him exit. But he is he's so insulated himself; he he really has 
where even a lot of authoritarians, they at least have circles of influence on them, you know, people with money or power or, you know, the army and such like that. But he's really positioned himself that even if uh, the Ukrainians start going after the Slaviki, I think what he needs to worry about more perhaps, and I'm just, and I'm just like reaching here and stuff. And this, I, I haven't really given this enough thought is if he starts losing the power of the purse, if, if the Ukrainians step up their attacks on economic targets that start causing greater suffering, shortages, inconveniences for the Russian masses, that might be something. That, and they've been doing a bit of that. They've been striking you know, oil refineries and all that kind of stuff. I actually kind of like that, I would think. If I was in their war room, I would probably be suggesting that. And Sylvie, yeah, why not? You know, maybe uh, because it's daring, it's audacious, and maybe it'll scare somebody. But I, I think Putin's got to worry about, you know, hundreds of thousands of people coming on the street. That's what he's got to worry about. And he's nowhere near that right now. And I think he's otherwise contained the potential. So long as he can count on Petrusha and Bortnikov, right, uh, his his. National Security Council President and his FSB chief, as long as he can count on those two people, uh, he doesn't even have to worry about the defense minister because he doesn't give a damn just, about you the just, defense minister. You just came around the corner to where, from where I was asking the question, should Ukraine aim okay. high? Yeah, yeah I, I, would, I, would, I would think uh, to go after the echo because he, Russia's... Um, what they've been able to do effectively is take advantage of their economic machinery. They're, you know, they're losing tons of tanks. They are making tons of tanks. Um, they're losing lots of people. They got, you know, lots of people. So they'll just conscript and, and send these poor people with no training just en masse uh, into, into the fodder and, and get killed because it takes bullets and missiles to kill them, which Ukraine is running low on. But but what he can't afford is if the war really starts hitting home and it's it causes uh, people to really go, we've got nothing to lose, that it's worth coming out and protesting. That's what he's got to worry about. Now, I don't think we're anywhere near that. And I don't honestly know that Ukraine can generate that type of targeting to have that effect. But the targeting itself might frighten him. And and I do believe Putin is is genuine that, hey, if you let me walk away right now with what I got, you know, we could have a ceasefire. It doesn't mean it's over. He still wants to overthrow the government. He still wants a puppet in Kiev. But I, I I'm sure it would at least get to to a ceasefire because it's expensive. And uh Russia is becoming increasingly a vassal of China. Uh, and he could act as pompous as he wants. He knows that. He knows that he is increasingly under China's thumb. So he's done his whole protest about, oh, you know, we're we're showing you America. But in the meantime, he's he's becoming uh, President Xi's, you know, subordinate in a way. So I think he would take that deal. I, I and that's why I would probably encourage that kind of targeting as opposed to, you know, going exclusively after strategic military targets, which they need to do. I'm going after targets that have a psychological effect, which would be Slaviki, you know, people that might be close to Putin to some extent. I think things that would cost Russia 
that would probably be a useful targeting step. And and they've been doing that somewhat of late. All right. Before we go further into the spy business and the assassins and the likes, a um, couple of questions are up. We have a couple of hands up. Let's clear those first, and then we'll uh, go through it further. For every child, then we go to Marcus. Bless you, Axel. You're so courageous calling on me, and I promise to be on my very best behavior. Uh, <clears throat> you always are when we're together here for every child. Please, no need. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> Uh, uh, Mr. London, I want to thank you so very much for being my voice in this space. Uh, I have tried to vo uh, to to speak on these issues and nowhere near as eloquently or as effectively as you have. I have I'm I'm I have some memories, some slight memories of the 1940s to give you some perspective of where I'm speaking from. I um I have spent a lifetime being right uh, that's not that's not very popular to spend a lifetime being right i in that lifetime of being right i've also learned that it is meaningless to be right if you are not effective and president biden understands the need to be effective slava ukraine no, thank you. Thank you very much for your, for your comments. And, and, and I do appreciate that. And welcome. And, and thank you for listening to the broadcast, sir. All right. With that, we go to Marcus. Yeah, I was wondering if you could speak to any of the kind of tradecraft things that went on with that Tucker interview. In particular, I found it entertaining that he, tra he did the kind of off-balancing thing where he brought up his, a thing about Tucker's past and mocked him for it. Was there any other tradecraft things that you spotted? <laughs> well, you know, he's a spy at the end of the day. You know, he was born and raised in condition to be a case officer. So he acts like that. So I recognize, I recognize what he's doing. Um, and some of it is also a smart ass. I mean, he's, he's a master of his domain. And he can pretty much get away with whatever he does. But his engagement of, of, of Tucker, you know, it, it was occasionally provocative but with sort of the escape that he's it's just all in good fun right because there are even some times where he'd say something and tucker would re respond and lord knows i'm not a tucker carlson fan and tucker would kind of respond and he's basically said eh, i'm just joking i'm just saying this so i i don't i don't think um he you know was using tradecraft in the classic sense of of using certain techniques to try to manipulate tucker he came to take advantage of the opportunity to speak to Tucker Carlson's audience, which he, he did very well. And most of what he did was um, prepared that, uh, you know, all his comments, everything, he had a script, he had talking points, right? And so I'm sure he studied his talking points and he organized what was most important to him. And I'm sure he was in charge of that. I think his organization was poor, to be honest, because he doesn't understand America. But uh, he had his organization and how he wanted to go through it. But I didn't see him, like, as we would say, tradecraft-wise, eliciting uh, in a certain way of Tucker or trying to engender certain responses. And to say, on the, uh, on the other side of it, you know, Tucker Carlson is still trying to look like, oh, he's independent. He's not, you know, the toady of, of Putin, and he's, he's, he's an effective independent journalist. So, you know, they, they, they both were doing their thing. But I, I, I think Putin can't help himself behaviorally. He's going to act like, a, like an operations officer does at times. But it's not like he was doing something there, you know, in public during a two-hour televised thing to try to develop Tucker Carlson. They, they get everything they need out of Tucker Carlson for free. Thank you.
All righty. Now that um, sorry, I just saw that what's it's a non-locality. Uh, you have a follow-up question very quickly, then we can do this. Otherwise, we'll move on. Further. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, one, D Doug, I just want to say thank you for your service. I appreciate um, what our agencies have done for our country. Uh, while I question accountability, uh, I, I certainly, as an American, want to thank you for your service. Um, yeah, I was interested, like Marcus, in, in some of the trade craft elements. I also would like to understand an effective way to mitigate against this, against when people are speaking uh, to us about what happened in Maidan um, and our involvement with it, how do you recommend uh, we approach these conversations? Because they seem to be difficult for, for me to have with those of us who, who believe in supporting Ukraine with everything we have. Sure, but uh, give me, if you would, to, to help me narrow it down, frame any specific actions that, that you're, you're... Victoria Newland handing out sandwiches uh, during the coup. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I don't know about that. Um, you know, Putin during did she poison anyone? Yeah, right. Douglas, did you did she poison anyone and, with those uh, Not, not I'm aware of. Um, you know, but I wasn't in the kitchen at the time, so I can't say. But uh, you know, I think Putin was 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 of course using a lot of that during his discussion. He talked about 2008, and he talked about you know Georgia, and then how he got some letter from the CIA. That said, we were supporting terrorists. So I, you know, I, and he said, "Oh, I'll pull it out of the archives for you." Yeah, I, I really doubt he got a letter from the CIA saying we were supporting terrorists. What he probably got in response was something that said the U.S. government supports the rightful uh, um, issues of the opposition of the legitimate democratic opposition. But of course, Putin thinks the democratic opposition are, are terrorists, and and Putin's going to think that. Any element that opposes Russia or wants to have a, a true democracy is is you know is an enemy and is is a terrorist group. So, so I, I don't I, I'm not really put off by that that kind of thing. Uh, in 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 theory, ideally, the United States, being a proponent of democracy, uh, has taken a stand that we will always support lawful, political, uh, and peaceful opposition. Right. So if the United States is uh, endorsing that, whether it's in, you know, Ukraine prior to, um, you know, the Orange Revolution or it's in Iran or whatever like that. I mean, that's consistent with that is actually a consistent plank of United States foreign policy. But to to a dictator who sees that as a threat, I mean, that's terrorism. So I don't know if I'm hitting on on the question you you, you want to ask. So let me know if you want to sort of narrow me down somewhat. No, I I, I, I think that was sufficient. Uh, Slava to Ukraine. I, I appreciate right. your time. Thank you guys for the thank space. Thank you. Slava, and thank you very much. And right before I wanted to go further, we have dry fly up. Hi, I'm driving, so I'll try to be quick. Um, I want to thank you uh, for, for coming on and doing this. Um, I don't know if you uh, were able to talk at all about that explosion at the missile plant. Um, I was uh, uh, running around, so missed some of it. If you have, um, I'll have to go back and catch it on the, on the replay. But if you haven't, I would sure like to hear. Well, Driver, we haven't spoken about it, but it, it, uh, we alluded to the fact that Budanov and his troops have um, incurred significant amount of damage 
already in Russia. Oh, yeah, I know that. You want to add something to that? No, I was going to say, I was just interested in his take on it, uh, number one. And then number two, he mentioned economic targets. And, and as you know, Axel, we've been talking about that here for, gosh, maybe a year. I mean, Will and I have actually gone out and, and said almost a year ago that refineries should be very, very high on the list. They should be some of the highest, even higher than the power plants and the distribution, because it actually affects the economy of Moscow and St. Pete more than the electrical grid does. I mean, the grid is important, but if you knock out the refinery, those people rely on diesel and gasoline to get around and to get supplies to their stores, whereas most of Russia reply, relies on electricity for trains. So if you were to actually target refineries, you bring the hurt to the people of St. Pete and to Moscow much, much more targetedly, and that would be a far greater effect, I would think, on the political instability of Putin. I would like Mr. London, if he could, to comment if he can think of any other areas besides refineries that would be especially good economic targets. And I will listen. Thank you. So I, I think it's a, a bit of a double-edged sword for Ukraine. Ukraine has rightfully said, you know, look, world, Russia is specifically targeting civilian targets. They're specifically trying to make life harder for our people. They're killing our civilians. They're targeting hospitals. They're targeting our infrastructure, our power grid in the middle of the winter and, and such. So, you know, Ukraine has tried to, as they, they ought to, cultivate sympathy and support that, you know, Russia is committing war crimes and and they're not really fighting, you know, a war. They're, they're just trying to, you know, expand the suffering of people. So you flip that around and Ukraine starts going after economic targets and, and there's economic targets and there's economic targets, right? And, and, and the spin machines can kind of play this as they will. But if, if Ukraine increases its targeting of economic targets that that cause you know russian people to suffer then it might undermine their ability to express outrage at russian civilian targeting i'm just saying that as an issue strategically i i as i said earlier and i, I agree i think maybe the best use of some of their uh behind line operations or long-range missiles is in fact as you said you know undermining the electrical grid going after the refineries, hitting places that hurt. I think I would encourage them if they could, and they mean simply not have the ability, I would expand cyber attacks. I mean, it's not like Russia is pulling its punches. It's done everything it could cyber-wise against Ukraine. And it's, it's unfortunately for them, unfortunately for us, Ukraine has become much more resilient. They've got a lot of help from the United States and private industry, as a matter of fact, to strengthen their resistance to cyber attacks. But I, I would guess, and I'm, I'm going to say guess because I, I don't have enough insight to say, that there's uh, asymmetrical opportunities in Russia where cyber attacks could be very effective and will get attention and, and have economic impact and have social impact. So besides the kinetic, you know, going after things as they can, because they've only got so many long-range missiles and, and they've only got so many cells that are able to operate behind enemy lines, I would certainly be uh, increasing my offensive cyber activity, and I would do so asymmetrically and find soft spots. And just because Russia is bigger and has a bigger country, has a bigger grid, has bigger, you know, has more, there's more to go after. That I would think, uh, just you know, intellectually, that there there might be opportunities there. So does that does that help? 
Yeah, uh, very much so. I agree with cyber 100%. Uh, the reason I liked uh, refineries is that when you hit electrical grids in the winter in Russia, people die. I mean, their houses get cold, people freeze to death. When you knock out a refinery, it just means the... Um, the wealthier people who have cars can't get to work. So it's an inconvenient. And then their stores don't get stocked, but they don't starve. They'll have emergency supplies, but it makes it harder. That's why I like the refinery so much. It wasn't going to be quite as ugly. You're not, they're not going to be bringing out children frozen to death and show them in the, on, on TV. It's just going to be a real, real headache and economically a big problem. But, yes, yeah, cyber would be ideal. No, I, I, I agree with you on the refineries because the refineries also hurt Russia's ability to, like, you know, have money and have currency and build more tanks. And they also make spectacular vignettes and pictures of things on fire where cyber ops, you don't generally see, you know, things blowing up or, or whatever. But you see these big refineries on fire. That's embarrassing for Putin. That makes him look weak. And he doesn't like to look weak. Oh, no. He also doesn't like it when he is considered to be dependent when somebody else has control over him and he uh, made very sure that an unprepared Mr. Carlson looked very, very hopeless and very, very hapless at the same time. No, it's an interesting point. And, 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 I'm, and I'm sorry, I don't want to um, delay more questioners, but just because you, you mentioned that in terms of information operations, uh, you know, it's, it's been a while since I've been recruiting and running Russian agents. But my recollection is uh, Russians have a historical enmity uh, or fear of China, right? That goes back centuries, right? The Mongolian hordes and such like that. And I would love to see, you know, information campaigns that that appeal to that and go, your country is becoming a vassal of China. You are becoming a slave state to what has over the centuries been one of your greatest enemies and you can't trust them and look at what is Putin doing. That's that's certainly something I'd be advocating for if I was in uh, one of the war rooms. But sorry, uh, please go, go on. <laughs> that's okay. Sorry, I just ate a pretzel. I apologize. Cece, please. Hi, Douglas. Welcome. This has been such a great talk. Um, just really informative. I really... Um, do appreciate what you were saying about Biden and the real politic of um, what is, you know, the brass tacks of what is possible versus what is possible. Let me just give this example. So I'm on MAGA um, mailing lists to do some oppo research. I, in fact, am an independent, but everyone's oppo of MAGA at this point. Anyone sane? Um, so every time Biden would come out with messaging that was pro-Ukraine, um, it would go out in all the MAGA messaging fundraisers that I would receive in my email inbox. And so I do know that he was very careful. And although I do not like much of, of what he's done with slow rolling weapons, um, I do understand that real politic of him needing to pay attention to the fact that people who hold the purse strings um, are the ones that you have to show some respect for just, you know, the, not only politically, but also just mechanically. So I really appreciate that. And I understand this, this doesn't need, it sounds like it doesn't need to be said, but it, because of how many times I've heard this, it apparently does. Would you address why Trump would not be good for Ukraine? Because we have a, lo a lot of really loud pro-Ukrainer voices um, which go out to tens of thousands of people who are now um, asserting this fact, which is nothing but false. So from what I've seen uh, since the time 
President Trump was in office and, and following. He has tried to flip the narrative that uh, it's Ukraine as opposed to Russia that is a greater threat to American democracy, that it was Ukraine and not Russia that was involved in election interference, that it was uh, Ukraine uh, that was in bed with the Biden family, that uh, Russia uh, just wants to live and, and be allowed to live. And, you know, Ukraine is, is you know, you know they've got a right to take the position they have, the threat that, you know, Ukraine presents them. So I, I do not see uh, a Trump administration being supportive of Ukraine's independence, let alone its ability to resist, resist Russia and, and, and Russian aggression. So I, I, again, see him doing what he has done and using misinformation and disinformation and falsehoods because politically for him, Russia has been good for him. Russia, he has managed to, to take his messaging on Putin and Russia, and it has played well in his base and it has resonated. And one thing I did see even when I was working with, uh, uh, in government during the Trump administration, he, whether it's for ego or it's political, he likes to stick to what he said. If he said he's going to do something, as insane as it might be, uh, he sticks to it. You know, ultimately, he pulled troops out of northwest Syria, U.S. troops out of northwest Syria, because he said he's getting out of Syria. It was ridiculous. Our defense secretary resigned over it. He didn't care. He said he was pulling out of Afghanistan because that's what he had campaigned on and he had promised. So he's campaigning on ending this war, which means basically telling Ukraine, you're on your own. And we want you to negotiate and we want you to accommodate Russia's claims to your territory. Uh, that's his campaign promise. And consistently, I've seen Trump feel it's very important to keep his base happy by, you know, if this is what he campaigned on and this is what they they support, that he's going to keep to it regardless of fallacy, which is really inconsistent with American political history, where you know, politicians are elected, whether it's, you know, the executive or the Senate or the House, and they, they see clarity from, you know, the facts and they go, oh, wow, well, I've had a campaign on this, but this is not in the country's best interest. Whereas my take on, on Mr. Trump is that it's what's in Mr. Trump's best interest, and that's his ability to, you know, solidify and, and expand uh, his, his base of power. So I do not think uh, a Trump administration would be in, in America's best interest and in turn would be of, of great help to Ukraine. Would you go so far as to say he's a compromat quizling? You know, I, I, I would love to be able to say that. I, I wish, you know, someday somebody comes up with that secret file and say he's been in bed with Russian intelligence. But the thing is, he doesn't have to. Russian intelligence never had to cultivate him. He was on his own doing their bidding. So I don't think that they needed to coerce him. And I, and I think at this point in time, and this is just based on experience and not based on, on any knowledge, if if there was some inkling of that and we were aware, it would have come out somewhere. So I just think that Russia has been able to manipulate Trump without having to, you know, do anything to compromise him. Because what compromise on Trump would his base care about? I mean, the man has like broken laws in my my mind, and a jury still has to decide. 
He tried to overthrow an election. He called on an insurrection against his own government. He stole documents. He's assaulted women. He's actually said, I could shoot somebody in Fifth Avenue and I would be fine. So I don't really think that there's any terrible, awful thing that could be exposed about Trump that his base would care about. Which which is sad, but, but they would, you know, Doug, they would care about a blue dress. Yes, I I I, I think they would applaud him. I, I I mean, for the love of God, you know. Oh, because he could, he could still right uh, exactly. I I think you know his base. I mean, his base includes the most you know these people claim to be the most religious and righteous people, and yet there's no doubt of the the horrible things he's done. And you know how those people rationalize it. They will say, well, he is, he is God's instrument. So it doesn't matter what he has done or said or whatever, that God has placed him here to, to put the right people on the Supreme Court and have the right laws. And, and it doesn't matter what he has done, which is just amazing when you think in American history, just the you know, suggestion of scandal has undermined presidential Senate aspirants, if you would. But in his case... It's it seems to make him stronger with his own base. Yeah, it seems that he is the ultimate reincarnation of Tammany Hall. He uh, and literally, um, don't forget the people who are um, people always defend uh, Judas Iscariot as being a tool of God, just as it's well. It's amazing, yeah. and they are the circle. They are the circle closers. Yep. But anyway, so I, I hope that that Basilius. Yep. Basilius, the question up. <clears throat> Yes, hello Douglas, uh, sir. Nice to uh, to meet you first of all. And uh, your word is my comment. I once prepared a, a meme which actually goes in, into the direction that you 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 sort of been mentioning, uh, and I put it into the nest. Uh, and I I hope uh, that you like it because it uh, goes in directly into this. Uh, um what actually russia came up from uh, that they have been the money launderers uh, uh, first of all for the uh, mo um yeah for, for the mongols uh, because they have been cruel enough actually to get the money and they they absurd their uh, yeah masters and took over their empire basically so it's always good to remind them uh, where they come from and what they are so i fully agree on this one Thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I mean, I, I just think it's a, a useful, you know, information thing to place. Uh, I mean, historically, that's always resonated with Russians. I, I think they've, in their heart of hearts, the Russians I've known were more worried about China than the United States, even during the Cold War. Is it, if I have a follow-back uh, back question, because regarding history, I'm, I'm actually from Poland, and what I learned today about Poland from uh, the mouth of uh, those two uh, individuals who I don't want to specify for any further uh, is uh, quite interesting and uh, <laughs> laughable. But uh, then again, uh, you've mentioned, been mentioning uh, uh, Putin as someone who uh, hates to lose. And you know who is also someone who hates to lose? The one, the guy, the orange guy we've been talking about earlier. And therefore... Isn't it also uh, like uh, couldn't be it be a strategy to actually actually make clear to all uh, uh, to his uh, uh, yeah uh, mega people uh, mega people and uh, um, supporters that uh, if Donald Trump would make any 
deal in Ukraine, which would uh, involve uh, Ukraine giving up some land, then Putin will would have won. And then Donald and all of those uh, people who think they, that he can uh, win everything would be actually the losers because uh, they have lost on a geopolitical uh, stage big, big time. Yeah, well, I, I, I was giving Axel grief as well about real politics in, in America, but I, I, don't, I don't think that would hurt him. You know, I think he's, he's, he and, and his, his team have done such a good job of, of turning reality on its head, whereas, you know, Putin's a good guy and he's our friend and Ukraine is really uh, the country we've got to worry about that I, I, I don't think that his base anyway would see it as a problem. It's, it's interesting if you see polls, you know, if you're a Republican and you really, really just think first and foremost about winning the election, that uh, Nikki Haley actually polls much better against Biden than Trump does, because Trump's base is reliable. Whatever it is, 35%, 40%, whatever it is, they're going to vote for Trump no matter what he does. You know, uh, but... Even when he does, doesn't... Does, exactly. But the independents uh, and, and those Republicans who still have some love of the Constitution and, and, and the historic process of this country are like, you know... He's probably going to lose to Biden because as dedicated as his base is, there's not enough of them to win the election. Whereas Haley, and I'm not saying I support Nikki Haley, but I'm just saying just according to the polls, what I've seen, and I believe they're credible, her her advantage over Biden is so far and above Trump's because she appeals to the moderates in the Republican Party. She appeals to the independents and she appeals to moderates even on the Democratic side who are worried about Biden's age and his capacity and such like that. But yet they're going to nominate Trump. And I hope Trump will lose in the election because as 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 in love as they are within his base is not does not represent a majority of the country. But that's just a tangent politically. And, and, and so carry on. <clears throat> I think the key aspect which we have in mind here is, of course, what happens in the meantime to uh, the national security position of the United States, uh, with its center being people who are not on the fringes of both the Democrat and the Republican Party, and who feel it necessary to conduct the business of the state accordingly. And that means making sure the long-term freedom and independence of the maritime democracies is preserved. And that requires planning Actually, about 15 years ago, what comes on online in the Navy in five years from now that uh, requires, so to say, therefore today, planning for what happens in 20 years from now. That cannot be conducted by people who fail to deter an enemy. So where are these people? What are, what are our wonderful agencies doing at the moment whilst this conundrum? Well, the institutions still, you know, go on, right? So... Presidents, uh, whoever they are, generally don't think beyond eight years. Um, they, they think in the near term what's going to happen in, in my lifetime, whereas institutions are thinking 20 years, 25 years down the line. So the U.S. Department of Defense is looking at threats 
and not necessarily specific to a particular country, but just threats that will be generated by not only geopolitical circumstances, by technology that they have to anticipate, you know, 15 years from now, 20 years from now, 25 years from now. So you see defense progress projects for, you know, satellites, submarines, airplanes that are, you know, 20 years in the making and that are designed to live for another 20 to 30 years thereafter. Those are uh, endeavors that politicians don't usually get too much involved with. The president doesn't care because he's looking at the next four to eight years. He's looking at right now generally. He should be thinking, you know, 25 years from now. And to some extent he does, but he's not as emotionally spent over it because it's not going to impact him politically right now or in the future. Senators and, and, and congressmen and House of Representatives, they love anything that brings money to their districts. So if it's going to bring, if a new submarine's going to bring money, going to bring jobs, even if we don't need it, they're probably going to vote for it. Um, intelligence agencies are likewise looking at where are the threats going to be over the horizon. So I, I think those institutions generally have some freedom to operate regardless of the political climate. Um, I think there's a danger if Trump does what he promises to do, which is to purge, right, to purge the, the different agencies of people who aren't loyal, is probably going to have some impact. Uh, it will definitely have some impact. But you know, the United States is, as institutions will likely trod on uh, thinking about the business of the country today, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. At least I would like to believe that. Thank you for that. Let's move on. We have someone to follow up on this non-locality. Well, thank you. Thank you, Axel. So my background, again, is capital markets, uh, former managing director, J.P. Morgan, and one of the things that I'm, I'm I'm most frustrated by is there. I believe there isn't enough focus on the dollar. When we look at the invasion timing, we see other systems come online to clear hydrocarbon type products in Wang. I really commend Douglas for speaking up about the space that China has created. I'm a little hesitant to say China. I'd like to focus on the Communist Party itself. We all have party problems. We don't have country and people problems within the country. We have specific party issues and we have leadership issues. I'm curious to know how you might inform a constructive approach to informing the masses in the Western world what a 30% hit to our dollar might look like or what the ramifications are of operational objectives that look to destabilize our reserve supremacy. Um, in addition to that, I think it would be helpful to help illuminate the reality that digital uh, um, central bank-linked uh, approaches to creating some sort of currency. When we look at a digital wand, there appears to be an expiration date on the wand. There are ways where you can socially drive uh, those wands to different sectors to buy more eggs, what have you. Is there anything proactive approach to spreading the word about the um, ecosystem of everything and, and how our adversaries are focused really uniquely in on this? I mean, Putin even spoke to this 
yesterday or whenever the interview happened. I, I was wondering if there's anything you can do to help kind of inform that discussion. So, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're a smart guy, you know your business, uh, uh, and you get it. But taking the things you just said and translating that on a mass base to, to people who, you know, most people don't look too far down the road. Right? And to try to explain what the impact is of the yuan being used as currency as opposed to the U.S. or, or the, the effect on U.S. currency, I mean... I see bits and pieces of it come out. You see pundits and you see scholars talk about these things. And the people reading it are generally other scholars, <laughs> other other pundits, as opposed to translating that into a real issue to a person at home is, you know, how's this going to affect your mortgage? How's this going to affect your ability to get a car loan? How's this going to affect your ability to, like, you know, to buy groceries? And that's really tricky. And for the United States, at least, and most of the democracies, they've got to be very cautious about the, the navigating the road between messaging, right, what is true, and looking like they're using propaganda themselves. Um, it's a lot easier, at least for an intel officer like me, to think about, now, how would I capture, you know, information and messaging for my rivals or my competitors? How would I, you know... You know, look at the, the the Chinese, you know, population or, or Russia's, you know, population. Then thinking about my own country because that's where there's all sorts of and appropriately so legal legal considerations. But just kind of even stepping back, when you're talking about economic things, it's really hard to translate what you're saying. Absolutely right. Uh, that sort of sophisticated, advanced theory and understanding into. How's this? Why is this important to you, right? How's this going to impact you? And doing it in a way that actually gets people's attention—that's that's really tricky and 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 certainly beyond my <laughs> my capacity. But the national security element of economic policy is a key aspect for the maritime democracies, and we discussed it here with Rear Admiral um, Dr. Chris Perry. Uh, the deterrence, which we should have engaged in, but haven't. The armament, which we should have engagement, engaged in, haven't, um, is currently risking our economic freedom. Because if there is no freedom of navigation, if our maritime transport logistics capacity and its nodes, its vital nodes, uh, this world, uh, in this world, are at risk, then of course, our terms of trade change that requires different capital structures that requires um, that will have both inflationary as well as at times very restrictive uh, liquidity issues, um, which we will suffer from. And that's not something which we can solve mm -hmm. just by printing money. On the contrary, this is nothing which we can solve by monetary policy. This is something where we actually have to act. This is, by the way, one of the things why the uh, prima facie, well, Pax Americana after the Second World War has been so important for world growth. Is there anybody currently, I mean, I'm not counting on State Department, of course, forget that. Uh, but is there anybody currently in this administration or whatever administration may come who understands that this is one of the most precious goods which we have, that freedom of navigation and Trade? Well, I mean, you know, we're, the United States is in the Red Sea shooting down missiles and drones to, to protect shipping. And then you see in the press, it's like, well, we're really going to say we're, we're going to war over protecting you know, sea lines of, of navigation. Well, well, yeah, we, we actually should be. But, you know, 
I, I live in Washington, D.C., right? And I teach at Georgetown University. And, and I've got children spread out all over the country. And when I leave Washington, D.C., and I go to wherever they are across the country, you know, nobody talks about politics. I mean, if they talk about politics, they talk about Trump. They talk about, you know, Travis Kelsey and, and, and Taylor Swift. <laughs> They're not talking about, you know, currency and devaluation and trade. They just don't care. They care about how things are more expensive or less expensive. They care about the availability of used cars when they weren't around for a while because, you know, you know, the used car market because of computer chips for new cars were, you know, being, you know, the stocks are running well. But 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 I'm I'm telling you in this 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 wonderful country of mine of, of 330 some odd million people, those are just not issues that resonate. Uh, you know, they 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 go to sound bites and things that they think affect them. So they they look at inflation because they know what things cost like in the stores. And when politicians say, well, things are more expensive for you because of China, and here's why we have to use tariffs, yeah, that that might get their attention. But to get into sort of the whole complicated world of, of, of international trade, as as impactful as it is, and and I get it, I certainly get it, of what it means for US national security and that of our, our partners. It, it is not a resonating political issue for the majority of Americans who, if I'm like visiting, you know, kids and my kids down in the South or, or Texas or Tennessee, they have no clue. They know, okay, China bad, Russia, well, it depends on, on what their politics are. Um, Iran, not nice, um, but they, they, they don't think in terms of those issues and, and American politics then goes to, okay, What's going to be what's going to resonate best with them? So it's usually things that scare them, uh, usually things that leverage victimization. Oh, you don't have a job because China is, you know, corner of the steel market or whatever. Things like that that resonate in soundbites. But you talk about currency and 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 uh, the the economic system, the international economic system. I mean, you're going to lose you you lose people. So professionals and and scholars and economists they get it. But those those issues, if they're not translatable to pocketbook, you know, and purse issues, they, they don't play well here. Well, you just um, put it right into perspective. Uh, I could have gone one step further and said, well, <clears throat> that once was an executive order in 1992, which uh, essentially um, allowed China to fool us on most favored nation status by fulfilling a few criteria, which we then water down and water down and water down and water down. And then somehow they just joined the WTO. And joining the WTO is the change, which of course enabled certain growth in certain sectors and certain segments, but essentially deindustrialized America. I wouldn't go to deindustrialize. I mean, that, well, I, I mean, I get where you're going, but I, that's that's seventeen percent, seventy percent, seventeen percent of all um, key manufacturing capabilities. Yeah, but, but just, just to play devil's advocate, though, just just to play devil's advocate, uh, that's that's a reflection of demographics, right? Where 
the, the American economy became more service-based as opposed to manufacturing-based, and it was actually cheaper to to uh, expand supply chains, uh, which we just came to dread when, when COVID hit and such like that. But I think a lot of those things are, are organic based on the movement of society where, you know, more Americans were getting higher education, looking for more service industry as manufacturing, and then economically... American companies were outsourcing, were taking advantage of more diverse supply chains to reduce costs. So I, I, I you know, I, I get where you're going, but I... I, I yeah, but the, the cost pressure, reduce cost, wait, 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 not so fast. I, I know that you get where I'm going, but I was trying to allude to something else. I'm not trying to make this a simplification process, a simplified message. No, no, no. I'm, I'm trying to allude to the, the point that we risked key and core comp competencies in manufacturing by allowing cost pressure to be put upon us. There was no need to allow China, prior to having fulfilled all accession criteria, to anything like the WTO. Well, tell that to tell we that to American industry because you know on Wall Street in well, New York, was this was going to make them more money, and they were going to contribute to the, to the to the political cause that was going to help them make more money, and and that's kind of the way that that went. So it wasn't thinking about terms of national security and retaining certain industries and all this kind of stuff. So now it's kind of flipped on its head, right? So there's this big outcry. I guess there's this sale pending of uh, U.S. steel to I think a Japanese consortium, right? Uh, and, and the U.S. government, in taking a look at it, it doesn't feel it's a threat to national security because actually U.S. Steel as a company, and forgive me, and, and I'm not an economist, so you know, people would, this is my opinion, right? And I could be wrong. My understanding is U.S. Steel has fallen to the fifth most profitable U.S. steel company because it's just not a very good steel company. So by letting the Japanese buy it, it's, it's not going to really threaten because it's part of the market and its capacity is is less of a national security issue, right? But now it's all flip over. It's like, oh well, we can't possibly sell U.S. steel to Japan because we're we're selling it to a, a foreign company. It, it it's because, uh, uh, but that's a different uh, thing. You're talking Japan now. That's a, it's a different part. Should be. I'm right. talking about China. I'm only talking about okay. China as a, as okay. a, a non-part. Anyway, you're, 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 you're going to be able to beat me up with economy because I'm, I'm not I'm not a very good economist. I'm, I'm trying to. No, I'm not trying to go there. I'm, that, I'm trying to get to the level of what, as an intelligence uh, agency, when you look at the long-term trend, that there's a risk of deindustrialization in core aspects of the national security-relevant sectors and segments, everything which feeds into better surface technology and the likes. Then, of course... Yeah, but COVID, COVID was the wake-up call for that, not, chi not China. I would it was, it was COVID, yeah. The consequence thereof is important. And, and COVID has but definitely got people's we, attention. We, we slept. Because, and you know why? It, and I wish it was because it was national security, but it was like American business got caught flat-footed. So it should have been, oh my God, COVID, we see the threat to our supply chains to national security. But it was more like, oh, our profits are down because <laughs> we can't depend on, you know, that textile coming from China to Vietnam to whatever. So, for maybe the wrong reasons, I think it was a wake-up call that that is is going to be across across the span of the American economy. At least that's what I've I've seen so far. But who knows what will happen a year from now? But let's talk spine. Very let's talk point. Intel. That's that's yeah, that's my comfort to, zone. I was just about to, I was just about to go. Good, there thank you. So. Uh, <laughs> 
I didn't stop the. I, I know. I, 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 I I'm getting like a, a migraine because I'm not. I'm not very smart and talented. I can't do economy and math. So you, you know, get me back into to spying where I, I feel a lot safer. That's all right. So, and when it comes to spying, now what happens? How is such an exchange actually conducted? When um, people are now obviously talking about this bicycle murderer or assassin on the one hand and Evan on the other, but what happens to these spy exchanges? And forget the movies, forget all this stuff. How difficult is it to actually create such an environment? That is the question which came from the audience to me, and I should be conveying it to you. All right, let's see if I can get a handle on it. In, in, what, in terms of how does the exchange get negotiated, even, even Putin referred to the special services. So, I mean, this is a dialogue that at least he's conducting through the FSB, uh, which would presumably be talking to the FBI and CIA and, and because Justice, American, the Department of Justice has to get involved regardless as well as State Department. But you're talking about what, like what, what, what the exchange is in terms of who they ask for and, and why? Because that's also changed a little bit, too, over the years. It was mostly spies. Now, who's trying to get criminals? Right, like uh, like Victor That's Victor Boots, right? Yeah, he, he, yeah. So it's a bit. Different. He's trying to get people who matter to him, right? As opposed to what we had before. Right. Before, and you could have said it's a like kind of right. change. Now it's uh, on the other exactly. Side. But okay, now that he has changed, how how are these things negotiated and worked out? How how does it, how is it conducted? That's what essentially the the question from the audience was to me. It's a negotiation. I mean, it's essentially a diplomatic negotiation uh, that uh, whoever the parties put front. Now, the United States is going to have diplomatic, law enforcement, and intel equities. So you would see stakeholders from state and justice and and CIA involved for their turf, right? Whatever their turf is. And and some of it, a lot of it is actually going to be behind the scenes. They're not necessarily negotiating with the Russians because that's going to be a diplomatic negotiation, which is really owned by state. But CIA will be advising on the intel ramifications and who these people are. And FBI and Justice are, are certainly involved if we're talking about people in the U.S. criminal system. So such as all the, the Russian illegals that we traded um, in 2010 for some uh, incarcerated agents, including Skripal, who was the target of Putin's assassination attempt in the U.K. Um, a few years ago, right? That's, that's all going to be handled uh, in, in diplomatic channels with the other agencies and stakeholders providing input and support to decision makers in the United States, but often behind the scenes. All right. Would we therefore, now, if we detect agents and amongst ourselves, for example, now in European parliaments, we just had the, the disease uh, breaking out yet again, a Latvian long-standing um, parliamentarian of the EU parliament has been discovered, disclosed to the public as a long-standing Russian spy. There's more of them. Some of them are reasonably well identified already. Some of them are known, I'm quite sure, and more of them will be known to the agencies themselves. What should we do with those? Should we just keep them, incarcerate them, or should we trade them? Uh, would the Russians ever trade them because they may not want them because they have been sufficiently exploited? 
What do we do with these kind of people? Those kind of people? yeah, I, I I don't necessarily know if the Russians would would want them, and and that would be the decisions of you know those governments, you know Latvia or or what have you to to trade them. And I I, I would I would just step back from it a little bit, um, just from an intel perspective, to offer that you know the United States, for example, if it looks at recruiting a politician, it considers that covert action, right? Because you're in fact interfering with the politics of another country, which for US law requires a, a presidential finding and you have to have something compelling. Even if you want to recruit a politician for foreign intelligence value because they're on committees and they have access to certain information, it's very dicey and sensitive because it's so close to covert action, you know, we may stay away from it. That, you know, the value that they have in terms of foreign intelligence doesn't doesn't merit the risk of going down this covert action road. You know, Russia doesn't have to worry about that, right? Authoritarian states don't have covert action processes and have to worry about values in the constitution and 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 public backlash. So they'll pursue these people. But there's also a question of how much value do you get in terms of influence? So if you're recruiting somebody who already does your bidding because their constituency feels that way, then it's kind of a waste of time. So it, it'd be, for example, if, if the Russians wanted to recruit you know, a, a congressman, in Ma, a MAGA a Republican congressman, what value are they getting? They're going to be supporting you know, opposition to uh, support to Ukraine and, and, and things that benefit Russia anyway. Their value would be going after a Democrat, right? Um, which is going to be a little bit harder for them to do. Now, Egypt actually did that, uh, as it is alleged, that Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey was essentially recruited by Egypt and was possibly also getting money from the Qataris to support things that were in Egypt's interest. In a way, that makes a, a, a little more sense. But the politicians I've seen exposed seem to already be representing people that were sympathetic to Russia anyway. So was that really a, a significant national history? It's, a, it's, a, it's appalling. It's embarrassing politically. But um, if the Russians are targeting people who are already kind of on their side, I, I don't get very exercised by it because I don't know that they're, they're gaining much of a gain. And then if and when these people get exposed, it's embarrassing to Russia overseas, not in Russia, they don't care. Uh, but it's also embarrassing to the people who thought, hey, this person was a patriot for our country. They just, you know, thought that uh, we should be more understanding of Russia's perspective. And it actually kind of undermines then what Russia's trying to accomplish. So I, I, I maybe don't get as worried from a, a strategic intel point of view from what I've seen so far, as opposed to them securing recruitments in the security services and the military and places like that, which would compromise extremely valuable secrets. But but that's just my perspective. Understood. Um, how often does it actually happen in recent years that we have valuable assets? And is, is this predominantly um, non-public or Political um, assets or, or foreign it? intelligence assets? Uh, no, no, in real <laughs> intelligence assets, not not the gullible, not the political ones, the ones which we've now seen, but rather the, the real assets where we've been able to exploit 
um, than beforehand after having observed them or the ones which have surprised us. How many how many real key assets have there been and which we then had to exchange or were able to exchange? Uh, well, you know, everyone's careful to say who people were, but if you look at the exchanges, which, which yeah. generally become public, there are a couple that have been non-public, right? Like in terms, I think the Iranians released three when the United States gave them a bunch of their money back and I think two were named and one wasn't and the 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 claim was well that person wasn't named because they of their privacy concerns you know it may it, and maybe that's so probably that's so there could have been <laughs> other things but uh it's it's historically occurred at least between the United States and Russia and then the Soviet Union before that and the United States and Iran to some extent but whether you know the, the Iranians would arrest these people as spies um, the United States or the Brits or whoever had people in jail would say, well, they weren't spies, they were dissidents or, or whatever like that. So I, I can't say, but it, but it, but it happens. The United States has certainly been able to extricate some valuable agents, theirs and, and British agents uh, over the years. And some of these, some of these trades post 2000, because post 2000, the Russians were less likely to like summarily execute these people. You know, before then, you know, they found they found a CIA agent or a British agent or German agent. They just put a bullet in their head and they'd be done with it. But they they kept these people alive, which is given an opportunity for a trade, which has served their interests as well. Because then they'll get the likes of a, of, of a Victor Boot or, or you know, some other unsavory individual who may or may not have intel connections. And in fact, the United States is sometimes traded Russian spies for dissidents in the 70s, obviously in the 80s, the a number of trades were to seek dissidents that Russia had put in jail or, or you know, um, scholars or, or what have you, right, uh, over, over the past. And it wasn't an intel thing for the U.S. We were, you know, securing the freedom of dissidents and trading Russia's spies back to them for that. So I think there's there's obviously a significant political element that goes into into play. So not all, and this is for the purpose of the audience, not all of those wonderful dissidents who managed to get into the West got there without payment. Yep, very, very true. And and just to give you a heads up, I've only got about 10 minutes um, left. Well, then let's uh, go through the questions quickly. We have Ernest Shackleton next. Thank you, Axel, and thank you, Marcilius, for co-hosting and for being with us, uh, Mr. London. I appreciate your time. Uh, folks listening, retweet and share the space. Uh, I would like to, you mentioned the 2010 ghost stories uh, sending home of spies that had been discovered and had to be dispensed with. I, I noticed that the treatment of um, secret services is quite different and how they actually mentioned earlier that uh, we behave in kind of a covert way in the West and in in the East, it seems to be that uh, they pretend to be covert, but they really want people to know that they're really nasty and we should be afraid. How um, can we maintain the power balance, obviously in our favour, while never conceding uh, and being forced to act in a false show of bravado? And do we therefore have to suffer some certain humiliations and, and, and certain appearances of loss when in fact that is just our cover? for how we do our business in a private way. And thank you for making time. I really hope you can come and be with us again. This is Marie Report, retweet, share the space. Oh, thank, thank you very much. Um, so, you know, uh, Russian tradecraft isn't great, uh, and that's wonderful. <laughs> so, thank goodness. 
and, and particularly over the last couple of years, there's been uh, a great number of both officially covered and unofficially covered um, uh, Russian intel people discovered and expelled or arrested. So we've seen all the articles about Russian illegals, and those are just just to make sure your audience understands where I'm um, drawing the line between the two. Russian illegals are people who aren't even supposed to be Russian. They are actually Russian nationals. They are trained intelligence officers, but they adopt the identity of a Brazilian, you know, a Norwegian, a Peruvian. Typically whatever. dead children, right? Irish dead children. In Very good. Absolutely. Right. And they operate generally uh, in a society to handle the most sensitive agents, sometimes conduct um, sabotage operations if it comes to comes to war. But in some cases, the Russians have gotten greedy and actually try to use these people to to collect information firsthand or recruit agents. That's really hard to run illegals like that these days because the Internet has made, you know, taking the birth certificate of a dead baby or whatever a lot harder to get away with and build a, a, a sustainable cover that accounts for 25, 30 years of somebody's life. And there's a lot of those people who've been discovered arrested uh, and are in jail. I, I don't know if any of the recent ones have been exchanged for anybody, but there's certainly potential there. There's also the official Russian um, covered intel officers. Hundreds were expelled across Europe since the uh, invasion of, of Ukraine in 2022. So the strategic question that I'll uh, address, and, and, and I hope it gets close to what you were asking, is we know a lot of people, but we don't necessarily want to make everybody aware we know who they are. Because if you know intel officers, then you could monitor them and find out who their agents are, you know, control their networks, uh, double agents back against them. So there's a balance between, OK, politically, it's really good to to send home a bunch of them. And there's also a disruptive aspect because if you send home a hundred Russian intel officers from Europe, you are screwing up their ability to handle their agents. You're making their lives really, really hard. So there's definitely a disruptive effect. Um, I tend to to um, like to manipulate what I have. So I'd rather than you know send all these people home, try to control networks, penetrate networks, redirect against networks. But manpower wise, if there's a hundred. If there are 100, 200, 300 intel officers that the Europeans have sent home in the past three years, the manpower to like maintain total control over the networks of 300 intel officers, that's not easy. So I would suspect, if it, well, let me put it this way, if it was me, I'd send home those that you know are easiest to send home, and I'd leave in place Russian intel officers I know about who I could keep controlling their networks. So I don't know if Thank that you answered your much. question, but it does. Was, no, it, excellent. Okay. Thank you so much for your answer and your time. It kind of jives with my own thoughts on how we see people wondering why would America warn they're going to start bombing this week? Well, the reason you do that is see where the rats run when they're scared. Right. You want to see where they go when they're afraid. Anyway, thank you, Douglas. Appreciate your time. Slava Ukraini. And Doug, if you allow me, I'd like to go to Azerbaijan to our colleague and friend, Ralph Ocean. Ralph. Uh, thank you uh, very much. Uh, good evening. Salam alaikum. Uh, I want to ask just uh, one question, uh, Mr. Douglas London, and I very uh, appreciate your uh, hearing uh, your experience and thank you share uh, with us is your opinion. Uh, my opinion is uh, What's happening in the Western world? 
uh, I think that is a very weak leadership now. Uh, so uh, last uh, maybe 10 years is a decade, uh, last 10 years, I saw that uh, especially is a three re uh, regime of Chinese Communist Party, uh, Putin regime, Russia, and Iranian Ayatollah so much uh, influence uh, inside uh, Western countries and uh, so easily uh, working with uh, so easily work working with a lobbyist. Uh, I mean, uh, working with politician. I mean, for example, uh, I saw that a lot of politician working with. Uh, Russian regime, your uh, China Communist uh, Party, your Iranian Ayatollah. What do you think about that? Thank you. Um, thanks for your question. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I've, I've got a real good handle on it, uh, but if, if it's basically about the the complicity or cooptation of, of politicians, um, I mean that's that's kind of historic to a to a degree. Right. Uh, and again, I was referencing the uh, U.S. senator from New Jersey, who's a Democrat, actually, Bob Menendez, who uh, the Justice Department has indicted for uh, taking bribes. Uh, it's really spying if you if, if you <laughs> the way you read it, uh, but, but taking uh, money from the Egyptian government and possibly the Qatari government to provide them some information, uh, but also to, to influence events. I, I mean, it's um, it's it's a it's a reality that it it occurs. I, I think I also try to give you some background of how most liberal democracies, their intelligence services, don't do that kind of uh, operational uh, stuff. Not because it's it's not ethical, but it's not efficient and and not necessarily effective. So I don't necessarily know that um, that and and maybe you see more than I have that I've seen evidence that it's gotten much worse. Um, it 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 kind of happens, and there's there's you know if they caught you know one or whatever, there's, there's there may be somebody else. But I think politicians, particularly in liberal democracies, uh, can find ways sometimes to spin what they're doing in terms of making it look like it's within their portfolio that they're engaging foreign governments. I think crossing the line is when they actually accept something materially, which they're not allowed to do, which influences their vote. So I. Don't know if that answered your question, sir, but but um, I, I may not be tracking as well as you are some of these events. All righty. Thank you for that. And thank you, Ralph. Uh, let's go to the last question because we're closing in on the top of the hour to Cleo. Thank you. I wanted to ask um, a question that basically has to do with with uh, longevity on a possible betrayal of information. Um, when uh, there has been a lot of speculation about how how much or whether um, Trump handed any uh, Israeli information over to Lavrov, and I'm wondering if you know, because there was a lot of information about you know dead agents after that. So I'm wondering what you thought of that, and if you do feel that uh, you know that Israeli information was compromised, how how long into the future does a, a compromise like that last? You know how how long before uh, one can trust one's um, you know uh, current uh, crafting of of information. 
Um, thanks for your question. So uh, again, trying to stay true to my obligations to the CIA. My understanding from public information is that in this meeting that occurred in the White House between um, then President Trump and Foreign Minister Lavrov and the incumbent Russian ambassador, he discussed two things which were considered sensitive. He discussed um, some uh, activities that uh, he was aware of from information that uh, the Israeli intelligence services have provided the United States, which he talked about, which would allow one to, to kind of divine from how the Israelis would have gotten that information. And similarly, uh, according to press, that based on what he told um, Lavrov and, and the Russian ambassador about Comey and the FBI director who he had fired, and the election meddling case uh, revealed information that, according to the press, was sourced to a very sensitive Rush, uh, Russian in the Kremlin who was working for CIA, who was subsequently exfiltrated <laughs> because there was a recognition that what the foreign president had done would have compromised the agent, so they had to get him out of the country, which, according to the press, they did successfully, and he's now living happily and safely. So to answer the consequence part of your question, the impact, obviously, is you lose the flow of information, and you lose the means of, of getting that information. So whether the means was a human being, agent, which was you know apparently the case uh, with the Russian that the CIA was running inside the Kremlin, according to the press. And from what I read in the press, the Israeli information might have been collected technically, which means then if the Russians are going to share that information with the targets of the Israeli collection, which I imagine they would have, then those people who the Israelis were getting information from would likewise identify their weaknesses and vulnerabilities and cut that off. So you you no longer have that flow. To offer a timeline, yeah, I really can't do that. I mean, because there are no real scientific ways to say, how long does it take you to re-recruit somebody and re-recruit that access? You could get lucky and recruit somebody who's already really senior, or they could volunteer and just approach the United States government and go, hey, listen, I work uh, in the Kremlin, I work for, or you're cultivating more junior people and then trying to cultivate and nurture their career over time until they get more and more access. So um, sadly, in the Intel community, we often answer questions with it depends because everything is so situationally dependent that I, I can't give you anything more scientific, but that gives you at least hopefully a sense. Thank you. All righty, Douglas. And Cleo, I hope that has assisted you. <laughs> All right. That sounds yeah. good. like a thumbs up. Thank you very much. Well, for the mic. Um, sorry. It can, it, thank you. As it, a, I'm, I'm sorry. The mic seems to go off and on uh, too slowly for me. And I hear that it is again. Not a problem. All right. Thanks. Bye. That is not a problem. Thank you. Um, Douglas, um, like the last couple of times, we managed to skirt around a few pitfalls. There are so many things which you can't talk about, but there are so many things which you should need to talk about, <laughs> despite the fact that you can't reference the underlying that's completely fine don't worry about it we'll do this again please do not let it happen uh, again that we are for so many months without <laughs> dump time you're very kind and all the listeners are very kind and you're kind to begin with listeners because you're listening to a very important program that gives all of us an opportunity to try to provide support to ukraine stand up to russia and do what's right for for everyone Right. So thank you for listening. Thank you for indulging me when I'm here. And thank you for indulging my absences when I'm not. 
But uh, by all means, please keep listening. Please keep doing the right thing uh, and and supporting resistance to Putin and 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 Russia. Yes, and for those in America who are currently still considering as to what to do on this uh, late uh, Friday afternoon, do give your senators a call and make sure that the vote tonight is sufficiently decisive. That is bloody vital. Thank you, Douglas. It was a pleasure spiffing again, and we will see you back here soon. Absolutely, and the pleasure is always mine. Thank you very much, everybody. And, and for those of you who want to continue hearing my musings, better or worse, you know, look me up on X or Twitter or whatever you want to call it these days, because uh, I've got a big mouth and I'm always talking about something. Should they should they read or listen to your book? Uh, you know, I, I think either are good. The person who does the narrative sounds so much better than me that people have these terrible, like, high expectations when they hear me talk after listening to the audio of the book. They go, boy, that guy sounds so much smarter, you know, and, 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 and no doubt, no doubt they're right. But <laughs> did, did you listen to, to uh, our friend Chuck's autobiography? I no, I didn't listen. To, I've 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 read his stuff, and, and um, he read it. He he, he read did the narrative. Oh my gosh! Well, Chuck's so articulate. He did the narrative, and on Audible, it's absolutely stunning. Warrior Soul. I can only highly recommend. Oh, it, just like absolutely. I could recommend your well, book, but well, you. and because it is, it's it's you know, we should be talking more about the recruiter. We should be talking about the recruiting process. Let's let's do let's something let's more do that, that next time. time. I, I'm much better at that than than economics. You did perfectly well. The audience wanted to hear it, but thank you. Thank you. All right, then. Until next time, everybody, be safe and be well. Bye-bye now. Thank you.